May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. These things we pray in the name of Jesus, the first fruits, the first fruit of those who have died. Amen. So you might have seen this phrase floating around somewhere, maybe on social media or in chicken soup for the soul or something like that. But the phrase is this. It's about the journey, not the destination. Or, if you flip it around, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. It's not about the journey, or it's about the journey, not the destination. And this phrase makes sense in a lot of ways. Our society is very practical, very goal-oriented. I think of all the times in university where people, when people, when I told people I was getting an English degree, and they'd ask something like, so what are you going to do with that? We have a hard time simply enjoying things or appreciating them for what they are when we're in the middle of them. Everything's got to have an outcome. Everything's got to have a purpose. So naturally, the idea that we should try to appreciate the path we're on while we're still on that path makes a lot of sense. So enjoy the scenery, stop, and smell the roses because they're going by. Having said all of that, a journey isn't really a journey without a destination, is it? Someone once said that the point of traveling is to come home, different. Even if we wander out in the woods for fun, that's the goal itself, right? On a broader level, we human beings are goal-oriented creatures. We need to think that we're working towards something, raising children, career success, money, fame, fortune, retirement, building a house, or falling in love. And once we hit a goal, we kind of move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And then if we don't have a goal, we tend to flounder. We tend to look inward and see ourselves as a failure. It's one thing, so it's one thing to enjoy the journey while we're on it. That's totally true. But if we have a journey without a destination, we tend to look at our lives and say, this ain't going nowhere or we're stuck. And this is more or less the point that the Apostle Paul makes in today's scripture passage, that without certain future hopes, we ain't going nowhere. And that future hope he's talking about is the resurrection of the dead. You'll remember from last week that some members of Paul's church in Corinth were denying the resurrection of Jesus, and this week we're still on the resurrection train. It's all about resurrection all the time for these chapters. This time, though, Paul's not reacting to a denial of the resurrection of Jesus in the past, like last week. This week, he's reacting to a denial of something that's related. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, he says, if Christ has been raised, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. And the resurrection of the dead, Paul is talking about, is what is often termed as the general 
resurrection. I mean, it sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? General resurrection. It's a medium resurrection. That at the end of time, at the culmination of all history, all human beings will somehow be raised, whereby some will be raised to eternal life forever with God. Who is and who isn't eternally is a question debated throughout history with a variety of answers. That's not the point of this sermon. But in this letter, it's sort of shorthand for that future resurrection and subsequent life eternal that comes with it. And that's what's being questioned or denied by the Corinthians, the general resurrection. Now, of course, we need to remember that this language isn't literalistic, like, you know, a video recording sent back from the future via divine DeLorean or something like that, which is the car in Back to the Future. Uh, anyway. Oh, that was a failure of a pop culture reference right there. Oh, the DeLorean. There you go. But it's stretching human imagination and words to try to describe this mystery that has come into sight. What is clear about this language is that it's about God being faithful even into death and beyond for human beings, but also for all of creation. We're not sure exactly how these people are denying it, but they are more or less saying that the resurrection is limited to this life. It's an experience. I mean, I said the resurrection is part of this life last week but it's not all there is. For these folks, resurrection is about the here and now. It's about that experience of exuberant new life. So you could say it's all about the journey and not about the destination. And of course, this denial of the resurrection drives Paul nuts, as does everything in his letters. If there's no resurrection of the dead, he says, if there's no resurrection, it means that Christ hasn't been raised. Basically, the idea here is that, that if you deny the future resurrection, it means you're denying that God has the power to raise people from the dead. Ergo, if God can't raise people from the dead in the future, God can't raise people from the dead in the past. Jesus isn't raised. Boom, there you go. You can't have one out without the other, Paul says. Resurrection, general re resurrection, same deal. Can't have one without the other. The key point is here, though. Furthermore, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If there's no general resurrection, then, he says, those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, then we deserve nothing but other people's pity. If this life is only the only thing we have hoped in Christ, then we deserve nothing but other people's pity. Okay, so there's two things here. First, he argues, is that if there's no future resurrection, then the members of the community who have died are lost forever. Dead is dead is dead. No future. That's all she wrote. That's it. And the second point Paul's making here is a similar point to a mediocre Freddie Mercury song from the 1980s. There must be more to life than this. 
How do we cope in a world without love, mending all those broken hearts and tending to all those crying faces? Good words. Not a great song, but good words. The world is full of such suffering and pain, and as much progress as there's been for humanity, every time we find a solution, we seem to be gifted with a new problem. And so, according to Paul, if all we can hope for is a slightly better version of the world as we is, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, and do all sorts of other things, which you're probably thinking of right now. For tomorrow we may die. Tomorrow we may die, that's it, so we might as well enjoy the journey, because there's no destination. If this is all there is, Paul argues, then it's without any deeper meaning, fulfillment, or future. Their denial drives Paul nuts because it means it's all journey. All journey all the time. No ultimate or final destination. We might have little destinations along the way, but there's no final destiny or destination. We don't actually get anywhere, at least not for very long. Everything passes with time. Now, of course, one criticism of Christianity is often that the existence of some reality after death makes this world unimportant. Might as well let this world crash and burn because we have an escape hatch, right? That slaves should do what masters say in this life for the promise of pie in the sky when you die, as one obvious example. You might say... Christianity's problem is that it's in danger of becoming all destination, no journey. All destination, no journey. And it's a danger, yes. It's always there. We can be as, in the words of, the, of a Johnny Cash song, so I'm just uh, coming out with all these songs today, aren't I? You're like, this is such a cool pastor. He knows all the music. <laughs> Nothing earlier than like 1985, but... Anyway, the song goes, so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Love that. But properly understood, resurrection is something of a blending of the two, the coming of the two together. That this life and eternity are intertwined and connected with one another. Journey and destination are one cohesive whole together. The little sentence at the end of our reading provides a clue. But in fact, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits. This is used often in the Bible. I mean, they're agricultural people. The first fruits are the very beginning of a season's harvest, right? Here, Paul's saying that Christ's resurrection is just the beginning. It's just the beginning of a greater yield to come. It's the tip of the iceberg. In the resurrection of Jesus, we've received a revelation, a call from the future. In him, we get this glimpse, this foretaste, a sneak preview of the eternal destiny that belongs to all of us. In it, we see that thread running back through billions of years of history 
and running forward past the horizon of infinity into forever. In his book, Making Sense of Evolution, the Catholic theologian John Hott writes about the immense suffering, death, and loss that's taken place over the billions of years of history and through the process of evolution. So many creatures, great and small, mass extinctions, countless instances of human suffering, war, and abuse. If this is all there is, Hot says, history and human life, by extension, has no meaning. Our faith is in vain, as Paul says. But if there's some sort of a consummation, some sort of an endpoint, an omega point, an eternal destiny, then nothing is in vain. Because nothing is ultimately lost. The power of God, he writes, the power of God to redeem all of life from death can be justified not by intellectual effort, but only by trust in the love and fidelity of the God we meet in Jesus Christ. If, as Jesus promised, the hairs on our head are numbered, and if, as the psalmist early, earlier proclaimed, all our tears flow into God's flask, then somehow every perishing life and every past event is preserved eternally in God. Though all of life comes to an end, past, present, and future are knit together by a love that cannot be vanquished by anything, not even death. Meaning that life is not simply a series of events, some joyful, most painful, a journey that turns to dust with the death of the sun, but it's a journey that's going somewhere. There's an end to the whole drama of things. And I'm going to share a little story about uh, one of my, my kids. And I, I, I don't really like kids' theology stories because they're a little cutesy. But this one was right. P correct theology came through his mouth. So I will, I will uh, share that with you. A couple months ago, my wife, Cheyenne, there she is, was driving in the car with Bram, our five-year-old son. And kids, of course, come out with strange questions. And sometimes those questions are morbid and scary. His strange question on the drive was this to Cheyenne. Will you get a tombstone shaped like me when I die? I mean, not just will you get a tombstone, but one shaped like him. I think you call it a monument at that point. So obviously, we need to work on the ego stuff. 
But Cheyenne, of course, told him that she probably wouldn't have anything to do with choosing his tombstone. It probably wouldn't happen for a long time, but she said she'd probably die before him. So no say over his grave markings. And he said, oh, okay. Then he was quiet for a bit. And he started up again, and this is where it does get a little bit more morbid. Where are you going to bury me, mummy? I know, it gets, it is morbid. And she reminded again, I probably won't have anything to do with that because I'll probably die before you. And this is the part that sort of, you know, made me as come close, as close to crying as I, as I do. But he said, but sometimes kids die before in accidents. And that's true, she said. And that would make me so, so, so sad. I don't even really want to think about it. The only thing that would make it a little okay would be, and just as she was about to finish that sentence, he finished it for her. That God would be loving me taking care of me? Yes, she said, that God would be loving you and taking care of you. And really, that is the promise of the gospel. Not that there's just a place called heaven, not that there's life after death, but that in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have beheld the love at the heart of all things. A love so great, so powerful, so overwhelming that death cannot, will not ever shake us or anything, anyone from its grasp. That is the gospel. It will not immediately erase the ache of death and the suffering of this life, but it will give us hope. It does give us hope. Hope that can make it all just even a little okay. Because every single moment, every single action, every single relationship matters in the end because it's part of the greater story of God's amazing grace. That all of our hurt and all of our pain and every single life and every single loss will one day be healed and redeemed, every tear wiped away, every trace of darkness in us burned away by the fire of God's mercy. It is amazing grace. So, brothers and sisters, if Christ hasn't been raised, we're still in our sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then those who have died have perished forever. If Christ hasn't been raised, then this world as it is is all we can ever hope for. But if Christ has been raised, if Christ is the first fruits of resurrection, of new creation, then this life is not only a journey, it's a journey fixed towards the most beautiful destination, the eternity of God's never-ending love. 
So, may we grab onto this good news for dear life and never let it go. Let's hope in the Lord whose day will come, the dawn of making all things new. Amen.